Welcome to Conversations in Coco, produced and hosted by Lauren Heineck. That's me. In these episodes, you will listen to interviews and other audio components that stem from the writings and newsletters found via the Substack platform where I am producing content. There are previous posts and future posts that will arrive to your inbox, available in various levels of membership found at laurenontheweekend.substack.com. Connect with me on Twitter at Weekend Chocolate and Instagram, Lauren on the Weekend. For all those three weekend mentions, that is WKND. Thanks as always for your support. And now a conversation with Marcus Patchen. When I was browsing your YouTube channel, The Nocturnal Herbalist, and seeing the plants and the other elements of your work through medicinal herbal interest and scientific research, and also just going beyond that, it seems like there's also this mystical element. I think you refer to it as non-science. So I'd love to hear just as we kind of begin this conversation, maybe how cacao falls into that, or, you know, what your view is in terms of how plants relate to us when I started writing the book, the book on chocolate, and I mean, I started researching that in 2006. I'd done a herbal medicine degree, which is a BSc in the UK, but I originally came from an arts background. I was an art student, and then I got into herbal medicine, and I got into the pharmacology of it all, and then I did the BSc herbal medicine degree, but obviously I'm a big hippie at heart. I was sort of still interested in the sort of magical esoteric worldview, and I started studying astrology, which obviously has very little scientific support there is some but it's very contradictory and there's no confirmed support for it really but I love it I think it's it's fascinating I think to my mind it's it's a missing leg from our culture it's not just my mind obviously loads of people have said said similar things in terms of the last sort of 200 plus years of materialism of predominantly materialist philosophy in quote-unquote the west which is obviously just really the sort of higher academic echelons because on a grassroots level for most of the world I think most of the world is still in the grip of what is sometimes pejoratively called magical thinking religious belief you know superstition all of that but in, in terms of the last 200 years we've really been in this materialist philosophy where you know if there's no proximate cause identifiable the automatic attitude is one of skepticism, which really, I think, in my view, has shifted its original meaning. Skepticism originally meant a spirit of inquiry so that you weren't closing your mind to any particular possibility. Now it's come to mean, I always think of this thing from one of the Star Wars prequel movies where there's the librarian who says, if it is not on our database, it does not exist or whatever she says, something like that. That's kind of what it's come to mean for a lot of people. Like, in other words, if we can't identify an A to B, then it means it's not real. Which in some cases is is quite a logical assumption, but it's often very an a priori assumption. It's often like people just assume that. Anyway, the point about my interest there is that I've always had that sort of mystical leaning where I kind of want to go back to that traditional assumption that there is meaning in things what the last 200 years to my mind have excluded is teleology you know which is that big word just meaning things evolve with a purpose life has a purpose a meaning within it and that's the assumption behind 
every sort of traditional religious belief, all traditional cultures, you know, you can name really. And that's really the thing that has been excised by this materialist philosophy the last 200 years. Actually, logically, there's no reason why it should be excised. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of an assumption. It's an assumption that that there is no meaning to things. Just because you've got a mechanistic explanation for something or not doesn't mean that there's no meaning in it. The reason I got drawn to study astrology while I was doing my thing, because obviously astrology is very beyond the pale scientifically, is because I read a book by a herbalist called Graham Tobin called Culpepper's Medicine, where he was talking about Nicholas Culpepper, this famous apothecary from the 16th century in the UK, a very famous herbalist, maverick, very anti-establishment, anti-authoritarian. He was the first person in the UK to translate the London Pharmacopoeia, which was the list of drugs by the official sort of apothecaries union from Latin into English. And he also added sarcastic commentary to the formulas. There are loads of little comments, like I can't remember one where where he talks about strawberry water. He says, this is a pretty thing and more fit for enlarging gentlemen's pockets than it is for its purpose. Stuff like that. Really sarcastic comments about how good the recipes were. So obviously he's great. I mean, he really just like shook things up. So Graham Tobin's book about him really opened my eyes to how important astrology was for about 3000 years of medicine. And it was used to sort of contextualize illness. And of course, they used it for prognosis and giving extra information. I kind of regard it as the medieval metaphysical x-ray. You know, they'd kind of like use this to try and say what's wrong and what should we do about it uh, and what's likely to happen. Now, irrespective of what you think of astrology's ability to predict or not, I think that element of meaning is really important. I often quote Viktor Frankl. Remember it, Viktor Frankl, who was interned in the concentration camps in the Second World War, very famous, became very eminent psychotherapist. And he says, despair is suffering without meaning. That element of meaning is crucial. What I think we're coming back to now in culture, what I think I'm detecting with this sort of renewed interest in, for example, psychedelics, with the renewed interest in the effect of the mind on actual physical processes, you know, in terms of what used to be known as pejoratively, again, the placebo effect, which is really one of the most fundamental and profound effects in medicine, generally, I believe. We're seeing more and more of a a cultural focus on these things and these things becoming more mainstream, I think, which is really interesting. I feel like some of the things which were dismissed as bathwater for the last 200 years are now being recognized as actually maybe baby a little bit, you know, so we kind of got to reincorporate them. We've sort of like chucked them out a little bit dismissively. My intention in writing the book was really to take something that I loved, which was cacao, as an exemplar of a plant medicine. So it's something that's been turned into a commercial product, chocolate, eating chocolate, which is, of course, you know, I have no problems with. It's great. It has roots, though like all plants do, I suppose, but it has very ancient roots. So it's just taking something that people will love and appreciate. And I myself identify as a chocoholic. That's one of the primary reasons. I love this plant. I'm fascinated in it. I've always been fascinated by its effect on me, chocolate, dark chocolate particularly, and the various interactions I've had with it. But also as somebody who studied to be a medical herbalist and is fascinated with plants and their pharmacology and their history and how they fit into culture, It's like by just taking this exemplar, you can look at the history of it and how it was transformed 
and how it, I believe, transformed the cultures it interacted with. Again, this very materialist assumption that we've made of the past 200 years, or perhaps this predates that, is, is partly maybe a, a monotheistic assumption. It's certainly not a pagan assumption, but certainly a monotheistic assumption that was imported into the science, let's say, of the last 200 years, that we as humans are the masters of the domain and we exert effects upon other members of the animal and vegetable kingdoms. When in fact, as we know, just biologically from the study of ecosystems, it is a very complicated feedback loop. And traditional animists and pagans would have had that view where everything had its own spirit, its own presiding deity. When you're interacting with something, it's interacting with you. So I kind of wanted to look at the history purely from a sort of historical viewpoint, like just look at the bare facts, then look at the pharmacology, which is to take it apart with this amazing technology that we've evolved over the past 200 years of sort of filleting things and looking at their chemistry and how all the bits work. But I did insert a quote at the beginning of chapter five, which is from the Tao Te Ching, which is one of my favorite quotes. Enumerate the parts of a carriage and still you have not explained what a carriage is which is a really important point. You can take things apart to find out how they work. It doesn't encompass the whole. The whole encompasses the whole. The thing is a thing of itself. Then the third section of the book was looking at the mythology and how the different cultural myths have formed around cacao. And then this isn't really designed to come to a solid conclusion. I have a couple of hypotheses that I advance in the book. I just really wanted this book to make people think, I mean, not that people don't think, but I mean, people think about some ideas that maybe they wouldn't have thought about before, like in terms of, oh, other things have their own purposes too, not just humans. And when we interact with them, they're affecting us. The chemistry of natural products itself is kind of like, it can't be reduced to one thing. It's like cacao isn't just a vegetable delivery mechanism for caffeine, for example, you know, like that, which was the assumption of the Victorian lot. Once they discovered the chemicals, quite naturally, they were like, oh, these are the bits that make it work. So, you know, then everything became, I say, like rather derisory in the book. They thought apples were vitamin C with packaging. Do you know what I mean? It's the same kind of thing, which we now know to be fundamentally untrue. Everything else modifies everything else in the context of the thing. <laughs> so anyway, that's some of the thinking behind the book and maybe provides a little bit of context. Yeah, what really resonates for me in my own period in my life right now is this idea of purpose, actually, trying to grapple with the concept of why cacao? Why does it move me in this way? Like, why am I drawn to it? Why do I feel connected to it when seemingly I have no association to where it comes from or who it impacted? And part of what I'm gathering from listening to your works is like, more of this connection to just humanity in general, and of course, environment and, and other plants and other ecosystems, but that it doesn't have to be specific to a single culture. No. It, it can be much more sort of encompassing. And then therefore we have almost a right, although that also feels very possessive of me to say. <laughs> yeah. mm, there's a few interesting threads there. I think and this is something that would be very in accordance with a lot of traditional thinking in different cultures worldwide, particularly cultures which had a shamanic kind of bent to them, as most ancient cultures did. I mean, in my view, this may be a bit of a linear academic view of history, but my view is certainly shaped by people like Terence McKenna and other excellent oddballs like that, uh, and hyper-intelligent, not just odd, but also very intelligent. 
but we've moved from I think a sort of shamanic past where our experience of quote unquote the spiritual was immersive like you actually got into it and then sort of culture moved I think to the civilized where we settled and created cities and structures and at that point spirituality became mediated and magic became tool-based so we got divination technologies of divination like casting lots or reading entrails or doing astrology which is universal to all cultures worldwide in different forms by the way which I, I speak about in the book a little bit like why I think that might be and, and likewise, the spiritual experience became more mediated. People weren't ingesting. I mean, this still happened. In, I'm not saying this is a, a clear division, but this seems to be the temporal progression of religion. And then as we became more civilized, there became more of a mental separation between divinity and humanity and less experiential stuff. And then in latter days, of course, it's been there is no such thing as anything other than the physical realm. So to bring this back to cacao, one of the theories that I have that I say is, seems to be common to a lot of traditional cultures is that plants have different personalities. And some of them, like people, some of them are very generous and want to mix with people and share their gifts. And others may be ornery. Some of them might be downright friggin' toxic. Do you know what I mean? Now, like people, all of these personalities may have their uses, have something to contribute. Uses, of course, is a very human-centric view, but again, you know, whatever. So the, the traditional views of these things, something like cacao in Mesoamerica, which is Central America, is still regarded in Mesoamerican coranderismo as a plant that attracts good. It's something that is definitely more on the benign and universally sort of beneficial sort of spectrum if, if you were going to characterize plants, as opposed to, say, something like a lot of things in the nightshade family, like in the old Europe, what used to be called the hexing herbs, like belladonna or mandrake. Or in South America, you've got a uh, tree datura or, or brugmansia. You know, they're very similar, very similar mythologies, all of them associated with dark spirits, with witchcraft. Because of the alkaloids they contain, if you're going to reduce it to chemistry, they produce these alkaloids, which are highly toxic, can kill you, produce amnesia, hangovers lasting weeks to months, can drive you crazy, and produce genuine delirium, as in you see things that aren't there. Now, of course, I'm not going to get into the reality of the shamanic experience. Like, are these things producing delirium by chemical reactions in the brain or are the chemical reactions in the brain opening doorways to things we don't normally see? These are very important points that I think, you know, a shamanic traditional perspective would be like the chemicals are opening doors. They're not just creating or generating, they're opening doorways. The materialist perspective would be they're just generating uh, an illusory experience. The idea there is that I think certain plants could be said to be, if they're beneficial to people, it's kind of like they should be made available to people. Does that mean that we can exploit the cultures that they came from as we have done historically? No, of course it doesn't. And there are companies now, thankfully, that are starting to do things very late in the day, but Late is better than nothing, which is like fair trade and just making sure that people who are growing the cacao get paid. But that unpicking of 500 plus years of post-colonial whatnot is going to take a while. And I think that's OK. It's OK in the sense that it's necessary that it takes a while because doing something by force and by mandate and by fiat and over quickly, I think, often creates more problems than just when you see the issue 
allowing people to, you know, just spreading the word and letting people realize gradually. Do you know what I mean? But then we're straying into territory there, which I think is, you know, uh, we could branch out in many directions from there. But I do think there is still an issue definitely with cacao and exploitation, as there are with many crops and products grown and produced in less economically well-off countries that were historically colonized by more well-off countries, let's say, or where there have been different issues of colonization in the past, but that's going to take a while to unpick. When I think about the idea of an herbalist, there's almost this idea of scarcity in that you work with these plants that grow in non-monocultural systems, right? Then therefore they're more special and better for you. And on the (laughs) other end, you have these, you know, larger based corn, wheat, and of course, cacao that have been exploited and massively produced. That's true. That's true, Lauren. But if I could put in a, a counterpoint as well, because although I broadly agree, I mean, I'm not a fan of monoculture in as far as it is ultimately extremely destructive to ecosystems and I believe to cultures, both. One of my little pet phrases, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. In other words, if you approach a certain thing with a particular mindset, that mindset will affect and contaminate, depending whether it's good or bad, (laughs) of the other things that you do, I I believe. So monoculture, I'm not a huge fan of. And there are great lessons from, like, for example, from Mesoamerica, one of the things that I talk about in the beginning of the book was their system of the milpas. I think that was a, a post-colonial Spanish name for it. Some of the native Mesoamerican systems, particularly the Mexica, who we subsequently renamed the Aztecs, but they call themselves the Mexica. They used to grow like cacao and maize and avocados and chilies and stuff like that in little plantations called milpas or maize fields. And the maize was grown with other crops like avocados and chilies and other things. So you'd have a mixture of legumes that we now know the mechanism of it all fix nitrogen into the soil so they would you know make the soil more fertile and then you'd have one of the like the trees shading some of the shadier crops and so they produce little mini ecosystems of course they can't be monocrop with machines but they were ultimately sustainable some of those milpers have been in continuous cultivation for over 10,000 years i mean it's a ridiculous amount of time continuous cultivation they can only be harvested by hand. They are, are lower yielding in that sense. But I'd agree that the quality of produce is, is generally higher. But the counterpoint is, again, coming from a traditional sort of animist point of view, I do like these little inversions or through the looking glass moments because it's just like, look at it this way. So something like wheat, if you were to look at it from the perspective of the plant and to imagine that the plant had a presiding kind of collective consciousness in the same way that humanity might be imagined to have a collective consciousness like Jungian style how successful is that plant? That plant has now colonized most of the world. It's done that perhaps by, if we were to look at it from a wheat-centered point of view, by collaborating or co-opting humans. If you look at the pharmacology of wheat, obviously it's nutritious, like the grains, starches, and a bit of protein. But some of those proteins, the gliadins, the gluten, which is, of course, very controversial nowadays, are actually exorphins. They bind to opiate receptors in the brain very weakly, but enough to make you feel a bit more relaxed after you've eaten wheaty products. Who is controlling whom? Do you know what I mean? It's like the assumption from a human point of view is that 
of course, technologically, we say we are, we're, we're genetically modifying it and we're doing all these things to it. But in terms of the actual spread of that plant, that plant has now displaced many of its quote unquote competitors. This is not to say <laughs> I'm supporting monoculture. It's just to say that it's sometimes interesting to invert things. And I'd say a similar thing with cacao. And I make a little comment in the third section of the books, like if aliens came down to earth one day, it's a bit of a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy kind of joke that maybe they'd surprise humans by just taking away a cacao tree to have a conversation with. And all the humans would be like, what? You know, it's like the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy, the dolphins. And it turns out that the mice are most intelligent species on the earth. And they've been experimenting on humans for hundreds of years. I don't think it's quite like that, but I do think there is some truth in the fact that we tend to assume that we're running things and actually, you know, our bodies are mostly comprised of microbes that it turns out are continually influencing us. And that every time we try and pull a lever, one of our levers gets pulled. You take antibiotics, it kills a bunch of your gut flora. That's going to impact your health over the long term. It's also probably going to change our mindset and may even change our genetic expression, influencing the next generation of humans. These things aren't necessarily separate outable. <laughs> that is a very welcome counter. And I realize upon speaking with you, like how human centric or in this sort of superiority, all of my biases are in that I've developed yeah. these ideas that have gone along with my own life, my own upbringing, my own teachings. And of course, all of the information we receive these days, which is to do the opposite of what we've been doing. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. I have to say there is a certain logic to having that bias. One perhaps should have a bias for one's own species in the sense that that's what enables a particular species to survive. But then if you're really mindful of long-term survival isn't just about domination, it's about cooperation. There's a balance there. You, you kind of like, okay, it's fine to look at things, but look at things from other perspectives too. Make sure you're going outside the box and looking at it from the other angles, because I think it's okay to look out for number one, because if you're not looking out for number one, who else is going to be? But at the same time, don't forget that number one is kind of partly illusory because nobody is an island. We're all freaking connected. Even the fact that I'm talking about this is kind of, I feel very much like I'm expressing some of the cognitive dissonance that is coming to the surface in our culture right now. Do you know what I mean? Where the last 200 years of materialism, as Terence McKenna would have put it, of dominator culture, I partly agree with Terence there. I think that lots of historical cultures have been dominator cultures in the sense that any individual and or group, people do tend to want to look out for their own self-interest. I think that's just partly inherent, but I do think there's been a, a cultural codification of that in terms of our institutions and our religious beliefs and whatever. We're at a really interesting point in history where we're starting to unpick that. And it's to what extent do we unpick it? Do we take it all apart? Do we take it apart partially? For me, it's always a baby bathwater thing. We need to keep the baby. There are some things in here that are useful and there are some things in here that are going to have to go. Okay. I know we're going to run out of time. There's so much to talk <laughs> about. And I'm so enthralled to hear you speak about these various elements. Keeping a bit with the astrology or personalities or the humors of the human body, let's say, do you find that particular individuals are more drawn to cacao via, 
either the composition of their body or their birth date or something like that? <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting question. Obviously, as I say, preface this with astrology not being scientific, so blah, blah, blah. But in terms of what I've observed, generally people astro-wise seem to have strong Venus influence in their charts, would seem to be more drawn to cacao, which would make sense because when cacao came to Europe, it was classified as a Venusian or Venerian substance. I talk about that in the first and the third sections of the book, in the history and in the mythology like how it was reclassified essentially as this sort of foreign sex drug for a while, you know, like the Marquis de Sade and his chocolate and the sort of the cachet it got in the courts of Europe because it was this exotic drug that was used by the emperor Montezuma in Mexico to bed 50 women because the accounts of the anonymous conqueror, which claimed that he would sort of drink loads of chocolate and then go to his harem or whatever. In fact, in, in Mesoamerica, it was associated with fertility but there were many other interesting associations with it, like, like uh, death, the underworld, the ancestors. That's another huge cacao-related tangent. In terms of what I've observed, I think astro-wise, it's sometimes people with a lot of Venus in their charts. Personality-wise, I don't know, but there are some things that are really suggestive from the research, from the sort of collated scientific stuff in the middle of the book. One is that people with a higher level of neuroticism in terms of the big five personality traits so that's openness to experience i think conscientiousness neuroticism which means basically people often misunderstand neuroticism they think it means like you're neurotic as in like you're crazy yeah exactly but actually it means susceptibility to negative emotion or sensitivity to negative emotion that is the technical definition of neuroticism and then the other two that i currently forget Big five, look them up. Big five personality traits. Well accepted in psychology at the moment, anyway. People with a higher level of neuroticism, sensitivity to negative emotion, tended to prefer or like chocolate more than people who didn't. So that's very interesting. I would certainly classify myself and I've done, you know, personality tests and I'm very high in openness. I'm very high in conscientiousness, which is unusual to be both. And I'm also extremely high in neuroticism. So I was just like, yeah, that kind of fit. I think chocolate may be something of a self-medication for people uh, like that, because it does have this sort of, you know, well-recognized comforting thing, which I, I talk about the chemistry of that. There's something, something of that there. I don't think it's quite that simple. I think there's some other factors in there too. And I think here, both the research and the mythology are really suggestive. The research, some of it suggests, for example, that mothers who ate chocolate during pregnancy rated their babies as being happier. I just thought that's the craziest thing. It's such an interesting piece of research. But at the same time, people who self-identified, this is a problem because obviously with, with statistics, you don't really want to have a self-selected group. But it was an online poll, a large online poll. They found that people who self-identified as depressive tended to eat more chocolate there's this whole thing of like, is this self-medicating? Potentially some weird feedback loop where people are eating more chocolate and becoming more depressed? Or is it just people who are depressed or a bit more neurotic tend to like chocolate more? You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be remedial or remediative. My feeling is that people who are more neurotic are generally more sensitive to it. This does not mean that people who don't have a high level of neuroticism 
can't like chocolate. It just means that more people who are more sensitive to negative emotion will, will like it more. And I do think it is because it somewhat re-regulates people, but I don't think cacao is a simple antidepressant. I don't think it's quite that straightforward. Just as a personal anecdote, one of my lowest moments in life came from a brain injury. Oh. Immediately following this instance, all I wanted was chocolate cake. It was the salve I needed. It was the hug. Question, Lauren, what effects did that brain injury have on your cognition and on your mood? I mean, I presume injury, it's very traumatic. I would assume that there was a lot of trauma involved physically and emotionally. How did it affect your mood and did it change your personality or your mood in some way, would you say? Sure, absolutely. I felt like a different person because I lost a lot of cognitive ability. Like I did have to go see a neuroscientist, neurologist, and, you know, figure out like what had been lost in that time frame and how I would recover. And if I would recover, like, would I be able to function as before? And it's almost now... Oh gosh, going on 15, 16 years ago. So I I feel more confident where I am today, but it has been a long journey into sort of recognizing if I'll find a voice again. And I still am very much a person that has trouble retaining information. That's really interesting because obviously chocolate cake is one of the most pleasurable, but also one of the least pharmacologically sort of high-end forms of chocolate. It's a very poor drug delivery system, let's say, in terms of cacao. The more traditional forms of drinking chocolate, which would be chocolate atolles. I think I heard your podcast with Cameron McNeil. I did, I did have, I love Cameron McNeil's book and her work is amazing. And her, her research was really instrumental for me, sort of assembling a lot of information, knowing where to look. Amazing. I have one tiny, tiny, tiny bone to pick from that podcast. It's the fact that she mentioned the Molineo thing, maybe, but it was more the, she mentioned drinking chocolate that was just made with melted chocolate and water. And that wasn't the real thing. And I'm like, well, she's right. But in that podcast, Dr. McNeil was saying the traditional form was the atolles made with maize. That is a traditional form of cacao beverage. I think the higher end, like in certainly the Mexica, as Dr. McNeil mentioned, or the Aztecs and many of the Maya nobility would not have drunk it with maize. They would have drunk it just with the cacao and the water and the spices or the other herbs, the foaming agents, some of the additives that I describe in the book. Because they would, maize was like the, the staple food, but why would you mix bread with this incredible, do you know what I mean? It's like, so that was a, a way that the poor or the common people would drink cacao as they do now, all these elaborate atolles, which are amazing but that it seems like some of the nobility and we can glean that we know for sure that the Mexica certainly drank it just straight with the beans and water. So it wouldn't have been, as Dr. McNeil said, it wouldn't have been just melted chocolate in water. It would have been the beans ground up and then mixed with water and spices, but it would have been quite strong actually. And certainly if you look at the Maya vases where they're pouring the depictions, it's dark brown liquid. It's frothy and you, you can still get that froth on atolles for sure. A lot of them, like she mentioned one, Bupu, there's Popo, there's various ones that are really foamy. But it seems like the nobility drank it without the maid. So in fact, your word, I think you use that, it would have been more potent. I absolutely agree. Traditional formulations of drinking chocolate are pretty potent, I think. And that, I think, was the point. That was why it was so sacramentally valued and valuable. And satiating, correct? Satiating, yeah, for sure. There's a lot we don't know and that has been reconstructed, 
and certainly Dr. Manil knows more about the various atolles than I do. I think I, I know some of the more specifics about particular recipes because that's my interest as a herbalist. And I, I tried to do in the book uh, my own version of archaeology just by going around looking at how all the atole makers that I interviewed constructed their atolles today and then thought, well, we know from the pre-Columbian recipes, the ones that survive, that admittedly are, as Dr. McNeil said in that podcast, the ones that survive are the ones that were written down by Hernandez and Sahagun in their accounts of the Mexica recipes. And the Mexica were an inland group. They couldn't grow cacao where they were. The cacao had to be imported from thousands of miles away by foot caravans. So for them, it was a really precious commodity. To the Maya, it was precious, but it wouldn't have had quite the same cachet because they could grow it on their doorstep, you know, in a lot of cases. So that's why the poor would have drunk it and they'd have mixed it with maize. For the Mexica, the poor didn't drink it. Only the rich drank it and it was never drunk with maize. It was drunk with just the herbs and spices because it was this incredibly precious thing. I can't remember what the original question was, but I just went off on a big old tangent. <laughs> oh, we were talking about the head injury. Yes. There may have been several reasons you were drawn to it. The first may just have been comfort food, like fat, sugar, plus the enhancement of cacao. Because what we've seen from rat experiments, which I do not endorse or enjoy, but you know, I, I decided to include them all in the book because it's all information, even though I'm not particularly happy with the method of extracting that information. It's nevertheless useful to know. And one of the experiments where they did, rats were, I think, fed chocolate, their encephalin, their release of endorphins, of opiates in their forebrain was 120% higher than baseline. And they found that with a human trial, this was fascinating. Food just flavored with chocolate without any actual cacao in it, just the cacao flavor had a more sort of habituating effect than other foods. They compared it to vanilla flavored, I think yogurt they used in this trial or something. And they basically said to two groups of people, I don't know if it's double blind, but it's placebo controlled trial of some sort. They basically said to these people, you can't eat this food for at least a couple of weeks or something. I can't remember the exact number. It's in chapter five. I, I, I described the study and they deprived them of that food for a couple of weeks. So one group was like vanilla flavored yogurt and vanilla, of course, is from Mesoamerica as well. Traditional chocolate spice. So it was interesting they chose that, but whatever. Uh, and then the other group was cacao or chocolate flavored food. And they found that on re-allowing them after a couple of weeks, okay, you can have that flavor again, you can have this again. The vanilla people just ate the same amount of vanilla as they did before. The chocolate people who'd been told they couldn't eat the chocolate flavored food, not actual chocolate, just the flavor, ate loads more initially than they had before. They'd really missed it and they really wanted it again. So I think cacao has some enhancing effect on the pleasure mechanisms of our brain. I mean, there's, I go into the pharmacology of this a lot in the book. There's many mechanisms by which I think this occurs. And I think what you may be seeing here is a conditioned response, which is like a learned pharmacological response. So a conditioned response is, for example, when you, let's take caffeine in tea or coffee or chocolate for that matter, when you first ingest it, and your body is naive to it, you may not even like the taste of it, particularly tea or coffee, as is true of many people. And then when your body experiences the effect of, of the drug, it's like, oh, this is quite nice. So then what often happens is, particularly with repetition, if the substance is powerful enough, like caffeine is very powerful, if the drug is powerful enough, you can get a conditioned response, just one or two exposures. 
say it's an experience, a pleasant experience, you might have to do it a few times. But with coffee or tea, what often happens, particularly if you're a habitual, say, morning coffee drinker, is you'll take your first sip of coffee and go, oh, you know, you'll feel that pleasure straight away. And that is a conditioned response. The drugs haven't even got a chance to get into your system. They're working before they've even started to do anything physically because your body knows it's coming and that there are some profound responses like this that you can elicit. Like they did an experiment, again, horrible mouse experiment where they tortured little animals. I quote this book a lot, amazing little work by Professor Daniel Merman. I think it's called Meaning, Magic and Medicine or something like that. It's about the placebo effect. Professor Merman, M-O-E-R-M-A-N-N, I think. A really good little slim book about placebo, mind-blowing. And he talks about this experiment where they inject mice with cyclophosphamide, which is an immune suppressing sort of chemotherapy type drug, really, really hardcore. And all their fur falls out and they feel really sick and get really ill. And then they recover. The next time you present those mice, you inject those mice with anything. They did the same thing. They set up the same conditions, same time, same group of mice, injected them just with saline water. All their fur fell out and they got really sick again. Because to the mice, it was the same experience. They had a, a very powerful conditioned response. Their setup was identical. And this is, I think, if you're looking for a mechanistic explanation of a lot of ritual and shamanic work, this is it. It's the mind. This isn't to say that there's no such thing as a spiritual reality. This isn't to say that the material level of reality that we can compass with our senses and that we can pass with our minds is all that there is. But it is to say that things have to work on this level too. <laughs> you know, there's measurable effects. Ritual and how we think about things and the setup of things has a very powerful effect, particularly if there's an initial pharmacological effect tied to that. You can get the effects of those quote unquote drugs or substances without even having a drug or substance present just by surrounding it with associations that trigger the same effects. Does that make sense? Oh, it's a really big subject, but just quickly here, I'm curious, mm. are there foods we eat that wouldn't offer us sort of that initial like spark? The thing is all foods and, and drugs are to my mind on a spectrum, really. In terms of plants, for example, it's pretty clear that at some ends you've got plants that are really edible and nutritious, and you've got a whole load of plants at the other end that are not edible, and some of those are going to be what we would recognize as drugs. They'd have pharmacological effects or medicinal properties that can be beneficial to us or in certain circumstances harmful and so on. And, and there's kind of a spectrum there, like you've got foods that are medicinal, like blueberries or garlic or a lot of the herbs for example or cranberries you know different circumstances then you've got plants that are certainly medicinal but kind of almost food grade like lemon balm or mint or chamomile or stuff like that then you've got a, moving a little bit further along you've got ones that are more recognizably druggy and can have some side effects but are still pretty mild like stuff like ginseng or echinacea or olive leaves then you can go further and right down to the far end where you've got highly toxic things like you or hellebore or periwinkle. Or, that's vinca major, by the way. The point is there's a whole spectrum there. So with food, the thing about that is if you're eating what would now be called a whole food diet and would 200 years ago, ago being called a diet, you're just literally eating 
food and and that's going to have some nutrients that you need and maybe some that you don't need and you know some occasionally that might be not good for you but it's going to have a whole mix of stuff and you know we're programmed to desire food we're programmed to have pleasure responses to things that are edible if you eat something with any sweetness to it your brain will release a little burst of endorphins and dopamine dopamine to incentivize you to get more of it and endorphins to make sure that you enjoy it and to sort of log that sensation and The issue is one where we have, because of our technologies and because of, I would say, the monumental hubris of assuming that our human station as self-nominated custodians of the planet makes us wiser than other beings, we have kind of amplified the things in food that we find pleasurable to the point that that has rendered many things that are edible, almost non-food items now. We're damaging ourselves. I mean, this is not a new thing. We've known this for many years, but particularly sort of this awareness has been sort of gradually increasing since the 70s, 80s. The sort of new technologies in the 50s of sort of margarine and things like that. All of these things were valid experiments, but in the process of making things shelf-stable, there are so many factors that go into this. One is, is our own slight hubris, as I say, that I talk about. But the second is the economic model that fits into that, the capitalist model. And I don't want to fully demonize capitalism. I think it has many problems, but I think at the same time, it's very difficult to construct a system that doesn't have problems. <laughs> I'm very on the fence about capitalism. Like There's some bits of it that are obviously really good, and there's some bits of it that are really pathological. But I think one of its pathological effects is it ends up prioritizing growth at the expense of quality all the time. I now almost have an allergic response to the word scalability. You know, people are often like, oh, do you not want to manufacture chocolate? You've written a book about chocolate. Don't you want to market your own chocolate? I'm like, no, I want people to buy their beans and roast them and shell them and grind them and make their own drinks and actually try the recipes out. I don't want to make and sell chocolate for people. I mean, I've done it in markets, like I've sold little batches and made it in markets and stuff. No shade to anyone who is selling chocolate on a large scale basis. But the issue to me is, again, I don't want to demonize capitalism. It's got its good points as well in terms of, you know, we can talk about how more people around the world now are not living in poverty. And in general, it's sort of lifted more people out of difficult circumstances. But it's also created this sort of pathological expansion, which seems to have as a side effect the denudation or degradation of quality of things, which is true on a physical level, like on the level of the quality of food, on the level of the freaking genome. That's a problem. You know, it's like we're blowing up the balloon and it's actually, it's getting bigger, but it's stretching. Wow. It might pop. From what I'm hearing from you, I get this sensation of like, we have to look at the ethics of manipulation. Yes. Cacao beans were roasted and processed in Mesoamerica. Like there was manipulation there to get it to the point where we could ingest it ourselves. But like, how far will we take that? Yeah. I mean, and this is it. It's like, what is the difference? This is an argument I see touted a lot of the time by pharmacophiles. And I am in a sense, a pharmacophile in the sense that I find it really interesting to take things apart and look at their ingredients. But at the same time, I tend to think that 
nature is the best pharmacist. And this isn't to say that nature, I think, is universally good. I tend to have a slightly pagan view of this. If you look at pagan goddesses, they weren't all sweetness and light. Do you know what I mean? It was known that nature was dangerous and sometimes capricious and sometimes harmful and also beautiful and bounteous. So it's just about horses for courses. If there's a plant that's good for this thing, use it for that thing. But like you wouldn't give yourself a chocolate enema, for example. Well, you might if you're into that. It's not fit for purpose, really. So it's just about interacting with the environment and learning what is good for what and what can help you with that. So one of the arguments I've heard from pharmacophiles is that there's no difference between the technology of, say, cooking something and the technology of manipulating the genetic code of something. I understand that on an intellectual level, like you're looking at it as an abstraction. The issue is that these things are not abstractions. They're real world interventions. It's like on paper, there's no difference. In language, there's no difference. In real world effects, big difference, because on the one hand, you are just manipulating the whole of an external thing to change its state. On the other hand, you are trying to fundamentally change the essence of a thing. It's a much more invasive process. Now, I don't believe that nature is that fragile. I think that in the end, this abstraction that we call nature, which I believe is, as I've said, teleological, I think it has purposes. I do think there is a consciousness behind everything. I don't adhere to any particular religion. I'd say my thinking is predominantly magical and spiritual and hippie and new age, basically. But I do think that nature isn't as fragile as we think. If we manipulate a gene, as I say, you pull a lever, a lever will be pulled right back. The tables will be righted one way or another. We may not like or enjoy the way that those tables are righted as a species. The myths about the hubris of the human race are there for a freaking reason. We are warning ourselves it's not that we can't innovate and create new technologies. It's just there's always a price. I always think of the Greek myth of Prometheus, you know, steal fire from the gods, benefit humanity. What happens to him? He's chained to a cliff face for the rest of eternity, having his liver pecked out by an eagle every day on repeat. New technology, high price to pay. It seems like that's always the, the case on some level. You know, any new technology will always generate some kind of sometimes literally fallout. I would make some kind of possibly slightly arbitrary, but I think nevertheless practical distinction between technologies that deal with the whole of things or try to at least acknowledge things having their own identities, either collectively or as a thing, and things which attempt to completely invade, disrespect, dismiss, destroy the identities of things this all comes from that flipping nonsense about you know like how it's all just language things don't really have identities it's all just like it's not it's not some things are a cacao bean is a cacao bean if i give you a cacao bean it's different from me giving you a brick or an apple they are different things i could go on a little rant here but i've talked myself into a dead end I think. <laughs> maybe just okay. as a final statement Marcus Patchett of The Secret Life of Chocolate, the book you can find in the links that I'll provide here for the episode. I also gather from our conversation today, which has really just been a heart opener for me, that cacao brings so much humility to my life. As an herbalist, 
what would you say is a means that we can connect closer to the plant? How do we honor it? To cacao or to all plants? You can choose. Brilliant. Thanks, Lauren. Okay. I'd say to plants in general, grow them and don't use weed killer. Try to use plant foods that are natural. Generally interact with them, grow them and use them in a sustainable way. Interaction. Immersion is always the best way of learning, I think. And then with cacao, my recommendation would be to find a ethical supplier of beans, meaning somebody who makes sure that people who grow the beans get the money and just get some cacao beans and start making your own. It's a really laborious process, but it's so worth it. And you'll learn a lot, even if what you learn initially is how not to burn your beans or, you know, how long it takes to shell them. It's a labor of love. I think that's just generically the advice that we should be taking. It doesn't mean that you always have to buy beans and make cacao from scratch. If you can source some good drinking chocolate, some good ceremonial chocolate, do that. It's like making bread. I advise everybody make your own bread. doesn't mean you always have to make your own bread. You can never buy bread from a supermarket, but know the process, know what goes into it. I just think always that immersion is the thing. And certainly me speaking as somebody who is very in my own head a lot and hyper intellectual. And definitely I call myself a top down herbalist. Some people are bottom up. Like some people like come from families where they've been growing plants for generations and they know the plants, but then they like find the university bit really hard. I found the university bit like quite easy and enjoyable because like books and libraries and research and stuff like it's like natural to me. And then like actually growing the plants. I didn't have a green thumb. I couldn't grow stuff very well. And that's sort of like gradually learning. So I think one of our jobs as educated Westerners, assuming it's mostly educated Westerners listening to this, is to become more top down, I think, is to immerse ourselves, is to get more hands on, particularly as technology accelerates and our environment. And in fact, some of the political mandates encourage us to become more disconnected, more disconnected and more separate and more reliant on technology. It's really important we make efforts to put our hands in the soil and grow stuff and do stuff, make stuff from scratch. Thank you. That's a beautiful way to end. I appreciate it, Marcus. <laughs> Thanks, Lauren. Thank you.